Well, good morning. Welcome to the second Sunday of Epiphany. So a young boy hears his voice called by God in the middle of the night. A uh, skeptical Israelite Nathaniel meets Jesus and suddenly understands who he is in a moment. The psalmist of 139 this morning senses God's intimate presence everywhere, senses that he is deeply known by God, that God hears him, knew him before he was born, knows his thoughts, and even in our uh, Pauline epistle, the sense that our bodies are the very temples of the Holy Spirit. He actually lives within these things, is as close to us as we are to ourselves, maybe strangely somehow closer. Well, these are passages selected for Epiphany. And Epiphany just means the manifestation of God's presence to us, the appearance of God's presence. And we're at that time at the beginning of the year after Christ's birth and Advent that we are remembering that God presents himself to us. He speaks, a voice in the night, an encounter, a sense of his presence. And so it's natural this time of year to ask two questions in Epiphany. Lord, how can we open more to the ways that you speak to us, to the ways that you present us to us? So as believers, our question this morning is, Lord, how do we open to this? You are the one presenting, but how can we raise the probability that we will encounter you insofar as it depends on us? And the second question we ask in Epiphany is, Lord, how can we help others who may have never known you, who may have never sensed your presence, how can we help them open to the ways you're speaking to them in ways they're not even aware of? Our non-believing friends, the people we work with, the people in our families, Lord, we pray for them. And of course, with that comes a little bit of a riddle. Why is it that if you're a believer here this morning, that this story that you hold so deeply, this person that we love who meets us in our very hearts, how is it that more people don't experience that? How is it at the name of Jesus or at the description of the gospel that more people don't have an encounter? Well, that comes a little bit of a riddle, and we can talk about that later. But this is the time of year when our hearts go out to those who do not know him, who do not know the light, or if they've heard the light, have rejected it. It's important to talk a little bit about maybe what the, even the word epiphany can mean in contemporary culture. Um, frequently, we talk about epiphany in terms of ideas, right? Like, I had an epiphany this morning, we might say, or I had an epiphany yesterday. I remember several months ago, I had an epiphany. I was driving down Newport Boulevard, and I saw Triangle Square, and I thought to myself, is it a triangle or is it a square? I don't understand. But then I thought, okay, no, it's a square as if in the sense where people meet, kind of metaphorical square, but with Harbor Boulevard and Newport Boulevard and 19th Street, it's in the shape of a triangle. It's a triangle where people meet as in a square. It's like an epiphany. <laughs> triangle square. That is so clever. That was a little epiphany. Didn't make a big difference in my life. It brought a little moment of joy, however. You ever read Gary Larson's comics? He's the one who does all the animals, Far Side. I love it when the scene is a field of cows at pasture, but one of them in the foreground is on his hind legs with a look of astonishment and says, this is grass. We've been eating grass. <laughs> That's an epiphany. So in common parlance, in common discussion, we tend to think of epiphany as a sudden clarity about an idea. And as an instructor, of course, as a teacher at a university, that's one of my great joys is I get to teach and people get to have occasionally, by the grace of God, epiphanies about things, often about self-knowledge, um, often about why they've made the decisions in their lives and what God is doing. It's great. 
It's a great, it's a great privilege. But this notion of an epiphany about ideas is not only what the Scriptures are talking about, not, merely, not primarily what the Scriptures are talking about. The Scriptures are talking about epiphanies not just about ideas, but in an encounter with a person. It's an epiphany about a person. It's a relationship to a person, not just to ideas. And in the last 300 years in our place in intellectual and cultural history, epiphany has really been more about ideas. Um, this is in part because we are the uh, descendants of the Enlightenment, where there has been a fascination with ideas, and of course the more information we have, the more power we feel like we have, and the more control we have. Knowing things, knowing things, knowing ideas has become prized above all else, especially now in the information age, when knowledge really is power. It helps us make sense of life. It's a good thing. But religious historians of thought have also noticed how this kind of sense of uh, epiphany of ideas and the primacy of knowing things has really even um, influenced how we talk about faith or belief. It used to mean the belief meant to hold something dear. The word belief meant to prize something. It meant to trust in a person. Belief meant trust. Faithing meant to trust. But through changes in our intellectual history and our culture, it has become a little depersonalized, words like belief and faith. So now if people are asked what they believe, they will often talk about their ideas, not necessarily about a person. And so there's been a slight impersonalization of the notions of belief and faith, even having devolved into mere opinion, as, as when we say, well, I believe so, or so-and-so believes. And so through this kind of romance with ideas and epiphanies of ideas, there's been a kind of romance more with thought than with God himself, more of a romance with, even for Christians, a temptation of being really attached primarily just to the ideas of faith, as if Christianity were an ethic or a philosophy and not belief or faith as this deep trust in a person. I remember not long ago, a sophomore came to me, a college sophomore, and he was a little distressed about his spiritual life because he was no longer getting the insights from Scripture that he got in the previous year. Apparently, his first year was filled, and as it would be at a Christian university, you're hearing these really knowledgeable professors speaking and learning, and his first year was just filled with delight as he was learning these insights, and things were making sense, and they were falling together wonderful period of his life. But in his second year, it just wasn't doing it for him. <laughs> he says, I'm just either not getting them or they're not as exciting, and I just, my spiritual life is, feels like it's waning. And I instantly knew what was happening. God was reminding him that this is about a person, that those ideas had all been good, but I said, you know, what God is doing now, he's going to take those things, but he's going to wean you a little bit from them. Now that you've had those and been equipped with those, he's drawing you back to himself. Reminding you that this is about him and not just about the thrill of insights. You see, we are warmed by fire and not just by the smoke of fire. And that helped him. So my word in part to you this morning is that epiphanies in our faith are not just about ideas, but they're about a person. And God has planted this deep in us from the very beginning as infants. You know, social scientists who have studied human development know that the first task of the infant and the caregiver is to experience a relationship of trust, of deep connection. We have it in our bones. From the very first day, we know it is not good for us to be alone. And so a parent's first task when an infant is born is to make that child feel connected, to make that child feel known. And the way they talk about this is by attuning, what social scientists call or 
uh, psych, um, developmental psychologists talk about attuning to a child. The importance of when a child cries for them to see on the face of the parent or the caregiver a sense of concern for them. To see their feelings mirrored in the caregiver's feelings. Or when a child laughs to see the joy on the parent's face mirrored back to the child. You see, this kind of being known, this sense of security, the sense of someone who's with me and knows me, is critical to a human sense of security and safety and joy. Uh, UCLA, there's a Department of Neuroscience, and the fellow that's probably uh, the front man for that, Daniel Siegel, has described this experience of being known by another whom one can trust as feeling felt by another. Think about that for a minute. It is the experience of not only feeling something, but knowing that the person across from you feels felt, feels what you're feeling, and therefore you feel felt. You feel that another person is feeling you. This is what a child needs, and of course, this is what as adults we still need. A child, of course, can't articulate this experience. You know, his left brain or her left brain, which is our uh, vehicle of reflection, of thought, of language, our left hemisphere, that doesn't come online until about 18 months, where a child begins to discover language. But the right hemisphere of the brain is one that's taking in everything that's happening. It's this holistic sense. They're taking in the environment. They're feeling it in their bones, their senses. They know what's happening in this right environmental, uh, right brain side. They feel connection with the right brain. They can do that from day one. They can only reflect on it later. That's why many of us don't remember the first year and a half, because we haven't been able to encode it in language. But it's in our bones. And so the child captures these nonverbal stimuli from other people's brains, from the caregiver's brains, and they feel known and trusted. Well, maybe you're already seeing the connection. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You know all my ways. Before I speak, before words on my tongue, you know it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What kind of epiphany is the psalmist celebrating? Strangely, it's not that he knows God <laughs> entirely. It's that he knows that God knows him. You know me. It's the ep epiphany of the knowledge that another person knows me. The psalmist feels felt by God. That God knows him. That God notices him. This is the epiphany. The psalmist celebrates in Psalm 139. Again, uh, psychologists call this secure attachment to another person. The sense that even when I don't sense their presence, I know they are with me. But we can just call it faith. <laughs> we can just call it trust. The sense that God knows us, notices us, loves us, and in whom we can trust. You know, Paul makes the same point. After that beautiful passage that you hear in weddings in 1 Corinthians on love, Love is patient, love is kind. He says a very strange thing at the end. At least the end of that section in 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. He says this relationship with God is we only see in a reflection. Now, our mirrors are pretty good. Our mirrors are a little too good sometimes. I know in our mirror at home, we have the full bathroom mirror. Then we have this little, like, intensifying mirror, a little round thing <laughs> where you can see every little pore. It's like, you know, I don't want to see every little pore. Thank you very much. But mirrors in the ancient world, in ancient Corinth, for instance, they weren't like that. They were basically polished metal. If you ever try to look at yourself in polished metal, it's like, you know, it's a funhouse mirror. You know, it's, it's, it's imperfect. 
So Paul's saying here, you know, right now we, 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 we sense this relationship, and, but it's, we imperfectly sense it. There are days when we just don't know if God loves us, and, and we're trying to recall that. So for now, he says, you know, we see a little unclearly. We're, we're opening to the truth of this. But he says, someday when we are in his presence, we shall see him face to face. See, now I know in part, but then he, 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 could, he could have then said, and then I will know fully. But he doesn't only just say that. He says, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. <laughs> he returns that notion of being known. And it's interesting that he would say face to face. Because what he's saying is, when I look into the face of God, not only will I see him, but I will see him seeing me. I will see him face to face seeing me. And I will know that I am fully known. There it is again, as in the psalmist. This need we have for our epiphany is not just to be about ideas, but to be about that God knows us and loves us. The, the complaint I hear most frequently from students about their parents is, you know, I just, I just didn't really feel like they knew me. They didn't really explore me. Now, teenagers are teenagers. and I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that when my daughters are in therapy, they'll be talking about the fact that Dottie and I, <laughs> as hard as we try, still didn't feel like they were known. But this is obviously important to us. And we see the same thing in our gospel passage. Philip who has already had a personal epiphany of Jesus, runs to his friend Nathanael and says, We have found him of whom Moses said in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip's had an epiphany. He's met Jesus. It's not just an epiphany about ideas. I mean, he refers to the ideas of the tradition. that This is the Messiah who has been talked about. But he says, now I've met him. Well, Nathanael hasn't met him. And so he gets the words. The left brain's taking in the words. Okay, yeah, the one who the Moses thought of, the prophets. And, the, and then he says, oh. I don't think anything good could come out of Nazareth, though. In other words, it wasn't persuasive. He did not have an epiphany. But then what happens? Well, you read the story. Philip said, well, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, what? How did you know me? <laughs> now, I mean, it could have been that Nathanael was just impressed by Jesus's kind of, you know, ability, his little parlor trick of reading <laughs> people's minds. And that may have been part of it. That's pretty amazing. But I think what touched Nathaniel is that he was deeply known. Jesus even makes the point of saying, you know, even before Philip called you, I saw you. I noticed you. <laughs> wow, that's powerful. It's like the psalmist. Before I was born, you knew me. When I was being formed in my mother's womb, you knew me. Jesus is saying, before Philip even called you, I saw you. I noticed you under that fig tree. It's powerful for Nathaniel. How does Nathaniel respond? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We don't get the psychological description of what was happening in Nathaniel's mind. We just know that at that moment when Jesus said, I knew you, I saw you, and I, I know you, that did something to Nathaniel. Not simply impressed with Jesus' ability to transcend kind of minds, but that he was known. The discovery that he was known by Jesus, one theologian writes, was so overwhelming that he gave up all resistance, and in the strongest language at his disposal, he confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And then Jesus says, you know, is it because I saw you under the fig tree that you're impressed? He says, there's going to be greater things that are going to happen from now on out. I mean, this is not just about, you know, knowing and being known. This is going to be, you're going to see, you're going to have major epiphanies about my work in the world, and you're going to be a part of it. So there's more stuff to come. Not all about this known and being known, but you know what? This is the core. Because if you don't feel known, you won't be able to trust. And if you won't be able to trust, you won't be able to obey. And if you can't obey, you won't see what I'm doing in the world and be a part of it. So the core is, do we feel felt by God? Do we feel known by Him? Do we trust Him? And do we feel enough trust to follow Him? 
course, young Samuel has a similar epiphany. He's just beginning the journey. A voice comes to him at the night. He thinks it's Eli. It's God. <laughs> it's God speaking to him. This epiphany that God would come to him as a young boy. Well, that is just beginning for him. And notice his response. Well, speak, Lord. I trust you already. Your servant is listening. So my encouragement for you this morning is to be aware during the season of Epiphany that you are known and felt by God, that He is actually moved by you. He actually responds emotionally to you. He's not our genie. He won't do everything we ask. He doesn't need us, but He is moved by our cries to Him, by our joys. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 30, 18, The Lord longs to be gracious to you, Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion in your time of need. He feels you. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He feels you. Psalm 26.2-3, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love. The psalmist says, I know that I feel felt by you. I've been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance upon your faithfulness. And of course, last week, we talked about the baptism of Jesus and the Lord saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, this is us too. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, this is us as well. So my encouragement to you this during this epiphany is to continue speaking with the Lord daily, to tell Him about your joys, sorrows, your needs, your confusion. For some of us, it's not as easy as others because, again, when we confront difficulties as children of the Enlightenment and as people simply with left brains, we want to solve our problems. We want to analyze them. We want to just journal about them. We want to get ideas that will help us, and that's all good. I know in my life, I, it's a joke. My, my, I have, there's probably 50 books on my bedside table, and I mean, I'm constantly just arranging them so they don't fall over, you know, which is ridiculous. And sometimes when I'm lying in bed at night, some of my confusion comes to me. You know, I'm making space now and some of the wolves charging upon me at late at night. Sometimes my first impulse is to grab a book and be warmed by an idea. And again, there's a place for that. There's a place for reading. There's a place, sometimes there's, there's times, seasons in our life for lots of reading, lots of learning. But I've noticed that this is a temptation for me. I will want to experience an idea with my left brain that will temporarily kind of soothe me rather than turning to Jesus with my whole self, turning to God and saying, Lord, do you love me? I don't know if I'm going to figure this out tonight. But I want to give myself to the sense that you notice what's happening. You know me, and I can trust you. My daughter and I have a little back and forth. I don't think I've been the greatest of spiritual trainers to my daughters, but I do have one little back and forth that we do, a little liturgy where I will say uh, to her, trust in, Lord, trust in the Lord people, and she says, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And that's our little to and fro on a daily basis. Because you know? I want her to teach her that you can just pour out your heart to God. He is our refuge. And my trust is that that trust will result in a plasticity in her spirit, a respondingness to God. But how do we help others, others who have never really known him in any significant way? How can we assist? Certainly it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But how can we raise the probability that others may open to this kind of epiphany? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? The problem is that they haven't had it. The problem is like Nathaniel. They, they haven't actually met Jesus. And as Todd's been saying the last few weeks, Christians have been talking. <laughs> Christians have been talking. We have been talking about Jesus. It is in the air. Sometimes other people are talking about Christ and Christianity, and their ideas are wrong or thin, but it's in the air. I imagine that everyone's heard the phrase, 
Jesus has died. I bet they could complete it for your sins. I bet everyone's heard the phrase, but Jesus loves you. I bet everyone is, who watches football has heard the phrase, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think a, a lot of people have heard these words, and that's a good thing. But what's happening is they're taking these words in with their left brain, the part that thinks and analyzes and problem solves, but often the context that their whole self is experiencing, as Todd has said in the last few weeks, is one of skepticism, an immediate defensiveness. What they're sensing with their right brain, environmentally, in terms of connection, with the slogans and news reports about religious strife or politics, is atmospheres of warning, of fear, of confusion, of apprehension, of defense. And so while their left brain hears the words Jesus or Jesus loves you, their right brain has heard these in contexts that are shaped by apprehension, defense, certainly because of the way these things have been talked about in the media. So we are living in that culture now of skepticism, where the right brain in some sense is overwhelming the information, never heard neutrally. There's an axiom in neuroscience, by the way, that says neurons that fire together wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. What does that mean? Well, for example, for a child who's had a bad dad, and the word dad now means something full of dread to him, full of pain. So he hears that word, it goes into his brain, that language activates neuron, but then there's a well-worn path in his brain already because the neurons that have fired when they hear that word are sadness, emptiness, abandonment. It is like a path through the forest that many people have trod. All you have to do is say that word to that child. Another, another kid says, hey, I'm going to the baseball game tonight with my dad. He hears that word dad, and it's just the neurons, they just fire across his whole body because it's fired that way so many times in his life. Neurons that fire together, wire together, it's a well-worn path. We see this in Nathaniel, don't we? <laughs> Philip comes with great news. We found the one whom Moses and the law and the prophets were speaking of, Jesus of Nazareth. Boom, right with that word Nazareth. All that stuff got erased, <laughs> whatever came before the word Nazareth. Because there's a well-worn path in Nathaniel's mind. Wow, Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Now, he's heard about Nazareth. Actually, he's heard nothing about Nazareth, frankly. He knows it exists, but it's this insignificant, podunk little town, never mentioned in the Old Testament, never mentioned in religious literature. His feeling, his right brain feeling about Nazareth is, what a crummy place Nazareth is. All he has to do is hear that word. Neurons that fire together, wire together. This overwhelms the whole message. His feeling about Nazareth. Nathaniel has to get that rewired. He actually has to meet Jesus. He actually has an epiphany of a person that will just create a new path where that whole, all that information gets surrounded by a different kind of connection, a personal connection. You see, this is why therapists, when you go to therapy, which all of you should, I know it's expensive. See, therapy is not just about insight. Insight's important. But what therapists will do with that child who's had a bad experience of his dad, what the therapist will do is not just help the child understand why he feels that way, but when that child says something that would have upset his dad, the therapist responds with patience and love. And that's surprising to the child because that doesn't fit the path. I said that to my dad. My dad would fly off the handle. And suddenly the surprise, this new kind of pathway in his spirit is created. He's had an epiphany not just of an idea. Ideas will not cure us. They're necessary. But of a person who's responding differently. And so how can we help others respond to the ways that God is presenting himself. Well, you know, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for them. An epiphany will be an important time for us to begin opening our spirit and saying, Lord, who do you want me to be praying for? Who 
is on my heart to have an epiphany. Not just of the truth of Christianity, which is critical, but of the person of Christianity. But another way we can help them is not just by praying, but to give them a new experience. Somehow God uses us. Somehow the Holy Spirit in our temples. Somehow through all of our stuff, the Lord is able to communicate his love to others. And here's the funny thing. Todd talked last week about listening to people. As you hear other people's stories of what they feel about Christianity, which sometimes can be, or, or about Christ, or which sometimes can be distorted and hurtful and difficult. You know what's funny about when people retell that story in the presence of someone who is compassionate? It does what that therapist did for that little child. It gives them a new feeling, even about the words they're saying. <laughs> their, right, their left brain is still thinking the same things, but their right brain is taking in this in an atmosphere of love suddenly, and patience, and interest, and care. And that memory is changed. That distortion is changed. This is not manipulation. We're not manipulating people. We're loving them. We're showing them God's love. And somehow just listening to them in the atmosphere is actually changing what they're thinking, even though we're not talking about thought. We're listening in an atmosphere of love. I may have told you that I was in a coffee shop uh, a few years ago, and we used to meet there. A bunch of my friends and I, we were meeting there ostensibly for prayer and worship and discussion and ended up talking about sports a lot too. But... Uh, but the people behind the counter knew, because they could hear it. It was a small place. They knew we were Christians. They could see the Bibles. They could, you know. And one day I went in there when we weren't meeting. I was just going by to get a cup of coffee, and I walked up to the counter. And uh, the guy behind the counter, I said, I'd like a you know, decaf soy latte or whatever it is I order. And his response was, you know, I've never liked the parable of the prodigal son. <laughs> wow. I was expecting, you know, two ninety five, please. And, I, you know, I instantly knew what was happening. There had been a bad experience in his life. And he was saying, you know, he, he basically went on to say, and there's people behind me, you know, waiting for their espresso. He was saying, uh, he, he went on to say briefly that he, he thought the older son got a raw deal. And I kind of knew what was happening. That wow, there's a big story here. This is his life. <laughs> I am not going to correct, and I'm not sure I should correct their notion right here at the register. I don't know if that's what's needed here. Something else is needed. And I just kind of validated. I go, yeah, the story does kind of leave us hanging about the older brother, doesn't it? That's all I said. And then I went in a few weeks later, and he was on his break, and I sat down with him. I said, by the way, you talked about the parable of prodigal son. Tell me about your understanding of that and what you're experiencing. And you know what he did? He told me about his life. He was a Vietnam vet, did the right thing all his life, went to fight for his country, came back, and he felt like he got spat upon. He was the older brother. And I listened to that story, and we talked about it a little bit. I don't know what happened to him in the end. But I sensed, you know, he needed a new experience, not just a correct theology. He needed a new experience of someone listening to him someone who was communicating the love of Christ, someone that he could associate. It's why one theologian says, you know, maybe the best thing is not when you start a relationship with someone that you're going to have a long relationship with, like at a work relationship or something. It might be good not to tell them you're a Christian at first because the, the neurons will just fire. <laughs> Christian, they fire together, wired up, same old path. How about you let them get to know you a little bit? How about you, you show concern for them and listen to them, and then someday they hear you're a Christian, suddenly it's confusion. Wait. That was supposed to go that way, went that way. My friend Brad, who teaches uh, pastor in Laguna, he used to be pastor in Laguna, teaches at the Laguna College of Art. People in Laguna don't expect Christians to be artistic, sensitive, nuanced, complex. <laughs> They've received some other notions through the media. And many of them don't know Brad as a pastor in town. He's their art teacher, the teacher of visual art. At some point, they discover it during the semester. A rewiring takes place. This person who is kind, helpful, thoughtful, is also uh, in love with Jesus. 
Well, ultimately, that's where we need to take them, isn't it? We need to take them to Jesus. To give them a feel for Him, to an aroma of Jesus, that they will open their spirit to Him. They'll have an epiphany, a partial epiphany we pray through us, and a full epiphany as we present them to Jesus through the story. The story is great because story fires the whole brain, the whole spirit. It creates the atmosphere in which we can understand that He loves us. So this morning, as we just do a short reflection time afterwards, you might just take some time to talk to God about what is in your soul today. Let yourself feel felt by Him. He hears you, whatever concerns you have. And then maybe allow Him to suggest one person to you that you pray would feel felt by God as well and have an epiphany of the Lord in their life.